0: Matthew Kearns of St. Louis struggled for most of his childhood with how to bond with his dad.
1: Kearns was a theater kid, a bookworm, his father, a truck driver, and a hunter.
0: But as an adult, Kearns figured out how to use elements of both theater and hunting to honor his dad.
1: And as you'll hear, there's even a mounted deer head in this story. I'm Nancy Fowler.
0: And I'm Willis Ryder Arnold. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis's arts and culture podcast.
1: So Matthew Kearns is the new head of what's called the St. Lou Fringe Festival of Performing Arts. But while he was planning this upcoming August event, he talked with us about a very personal project.
0: We started out by asking him to talk a little bit about the relationship he had with his dad. I would say that my relationship with my dad
2: when I was growing up was a little scary because... He, I was always being pushed to do things that he did, and I didn't want to do them. I didn't want to fix a truck or go hunting or go fishing or all these things where they were like, you're a boy, go with your father. And so I would be there and be miserable because that's not even remotely who I am.
1: So you'd be there in a duck blind and just be like wishing to be somewhere else? Yeah, totally. I was sitting
2: in a tree stand holding a gun and crying.
1: So what else were you like?
2: Oh, gosh, well, I enjoyed theater and television <laughs> and anything really about the arts. I found it very young and I was in love with it uh, pretty straight away. So my parents got divorced when I was 20 and going away to finish college. And in that moment of time, I had like taken out student loans and did whatever I had to do to like, go do it. And in the first semester of me being away, which was actually the first semester of my junior year of undergrad, my dad called me kind of out of the blue and he said, look, if you really want to do this theater thing and you prove to me by getting straight A's that you, you can do this and you have a goal and you're gonna achieve it, I'll pay for the rest of your college because I believe in you. And he did. And so that was moment number one where I was like, okay, we're starting to understand each other. And uh, moment number two was probably when I was 30 he had called. I was living in Chicago. I was, I was teaching and he called and he was like, hey, I'm on my way because my dad was a truck driver. So whenever he would like come through, he would call and he would stay over and we would go to dinner. And it was, you know, Thursday night, all you could eat rib night at the local rib shack. So I was like, yeah, come on over, dad. Let's let's go. We'll have dinner. And we were sitting there and we were talking and I had these things I wanted to say to him. And I was like, oh, my God, dad, I'm a really terrible person. These are things that I do. And he was like, do you think I don't know that? I don't care. All I care about is that, literally what he said was, all I care about is that we're a family and we spend time together and that we love each other. Yeah, right? I mean, it's this crazy, like, baseball playing, truck driving, like, fishing guy who just had this amazing self-actualization about him to go, none of this matters. As my mother moved out of the picture through their divorce and... My sister and I and then my nephews were there. My dad would just call us up and be like, you're coming in this weekend because I bought tickets for the Science Center. Or, you know, I ran a marathon. He was like, Marianne, you're going to Chicago with the kids. We're watching your brother do this. And we just like had these forced events that were awesome. But like.
1: They didn't involve hunting.
2: Not at all. Yeah, (laughs) not at all.
1: (laughs) So. Can you share with us some of those things that you told your father that made you think you were a terrible person?
2: Oh, God. Well, so yes, being gay was number one. I was told that he would not accept it, and that would be like deal off. And he, he just cried a little and said, do you, why do you think I don't know this about you? And why do you think I care about this? I don't. I just want you to be happy. The, the other things were like things that I was like, dad, I don't like these things, and I don't, I don't know how to be who you want me to be. I'm not gonna go do this, and I'm not gonna go do this, and I don't know how to put the brakes on my car without taking it somewhere. And he said, I, that doesn't matter. He's like, what matters is you're my kid, I'm your dad. That's it, and let's find things that we like together. And we did. We, we found commonality in food making it and or going to it we found commonality in movies my dad was a huge moviegoer and so we would go to movies and actually after he died i was living away somewhere and i started taking myself to sunday morning movies and where nobody else was there with a cup of coffee and just crying through them it's this like release of grief because it was a place in a space that we had together um, that still felt really uh, important, and still does. I'll still take myself to a movie just out of the blue. I always knew that dad was like, all right, this is not really for me, but I'm here. He showed up, you know. I was living in Colorado. I went to graduate school out there in Boulder. And uh, dad had found his way to the people that he contracted for. He was delivering vanilla extract to the bottles to this vanilla extract bottling specific. company. I know, <laughs> it is, right? And,
1: and something about vanilla is...
2: And we both like love vanilla ice cream, so that's perfect. But he called and he said, hey, I'm coming out. And it was our second year like ensemble thesis project. And I mean, it was this really awesome but really bizarre retelling of Siddhartha, the book. And I was like, OK, Dad, well, this is this weekend. And I'm not sure that this is a great weekend because I'm not sure you want to see this. He's like, no, I want to see it. And through the three hours of completely bizarre performance art that we had made, he was sat there like a champ. And afterwards, that was interesting. <laughs> like, that was it. And I was like, okay, you did it, you, you, but it wasn't for you.
1: At some point uh, in theater, you learned from, I think, a professor about the power of a single object yep. in theater. Tell us about that.
2: So I am fortunate enough to be trained by the great Lenny Sack, who is a member of Richard Schechner's performance group uh, out of New York uh, in the 70s. And Lenny Sack is all about object embodiment. And essentially, that means that you take an object and you spend time with it and you meditate with it and you just really let the object help you find the story that's going to unfold. And so I take that object work really seriously because it does help inform, I mean, th- objects are all around our lives all the time and they define who we are and they, they're connected to stories that we have, whether we realize it or not.
0: And that actually also, you took that approach and applied it to something with your dad's history as well, right? I did. So my dad had,
2: a just about three years ago this November, had a very massive heart attack and uh, died. We were talking that afternoon. My sister... And I and dad were all on the phone together in three parts of the country talking about what we were going to do for the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving because my nephews go to their dads on Thanksgiving. And talking about, like, what we're going to eat and things of that nature and having, you know, our usual, like, bickerings that we have on the phone that you have with your sibling and your dad. Sure. And... uh, Marianne got a phone call at three o'clock that night from the state of Kentucky, saying that they had found her number in his phone. He was trying to call her um, at a truck stop. That's and, your sister. Yeah, that's my sister, and um, he was dead. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable to think that we were having this conversation that afternoon and that night he was just gone. I, you know how somebody calls you in the middle of the night? Well, I was. <laughs> I picked up. I was like, "Did you roll over on your phone? Why are you calling me?" And there was nobody there. And I was like, Mary? And I just thought, you know, that she had, like, pocket dialed me. And then her boyfriend said really faintly, there's been something that's happened, and your dad is dead. I'm sorry. And he hung up the phone. And it took a whole second to, like, process what he had just said and that he wasn't there anymore, and I started, like, redialing the phone and couldn't get it to work because, you know, iPhones, sometimes in the moment of crisis, they just are not going to live up.
1: Plus, we've all had that dream.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Right. We've all had that dream. That
1: nightmare where you can't call for help. And
2: though. so I'm peeling it out of the case, like, trying to, like, get it to work. And and the phone rang, and Mary picked it up, and she said, he called you and told you, didn't he? And I was, said, I, I don't understand what's going on. And And she said... Dad had a heart attack in the state of Kentucky. Old Grove, like that was the county, which was interesting to me because my grandparents, his parents, grew up in Old Grove, Missouri. So Hmm. talk about like strange parallels. Um, So we just kind of suddenly moved into a mode of, okay, we have to go do this now. And the Wednesday night that we were supposed to be at dinner with the kids, we were at my father's wake.
1: At some point in your adult life, you ask your father for an object that was important to him and emblematic of who he was. What Can you tell us about that?
2: I did. I did. About uh, five years before he died, uh, he, he, like I said, is a huge hunter. And since I was a little kid, probably like three, uh, this deer head hung in our family room. And I never thought it was weird because it was always there. Other people would come over and be a little traumatized by the idea of this, like, formerly living thing, like being a trophy on the wall above the family room couch. It always hung in his house as this, like, great sense of pride. And one day I just said, Dad, can I have that? And he said, I'll think about it. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, okay. He's like, you're not going to do anything weird to it,
1: <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> right?
2: And he was, I was like, no, 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 I won't do anything. Okay, you can't hang anything on it, you can't put anything on it, and this is how you clean it. And he gave me all these instructions on how to like take care of this because it really like meant something to him, which is why it meant something to me. And so this deer head, and it's a female deer, it's a doe. She,
0: she.
1: <laughs> we cannot burst into Sound of Music. Yeah, right, exactly.
2: I uh, <laughs>
0: did start to go, exactly.
1: <laughs> A
2: female deer. She has hung in my house, in my office, or in my den, wherever I've traveled around. And it's it's so interesting to me. And again, if we go back to the idea of object embodiment, when I started making this piece, that that taxidermy deer head... Went from being this thing that I just thought was quirky and funny that we had in our lives, to being a great shrine to my father and his marksmanship and his manhood and what he perceived as as the epitome of like actualization, which was a trophy of this kind.
1: And then after he died, uh, you changed your life, and I did. Also, um, did something that. Had to do with this trophy.
2: I did when when he died. I was away uh, working on a contract at a company, and I quit. I left. I said I can't do this. I stayed to get them through to the person who would take over for me, and I came home. I just had. I hadn't. I felt like I had no choice but to come home to St. Louis after having been gone for almost 20 years. And not knowing what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, I just wanted to come home and be with my nephews and my sister. And it took a short amount of time before I decided the thing that I needed to start with was to go in the studio and uh, make a piece of work. I was collaborating with a former classmate here in St. Louis and we created this piece and this piece was very much about that deer head that encompassed my dad. And I remember taking this flashlight on a pole in the space because the the deer head wasn't there. I thought about it and didn't want to do it because it would break the rules of like doing things to it that I'm not allowed to do.
1: According to your dad's yeah, exactly. your, very specific care list. Yeah,
2: totally. So I took the flashlight instead on this pole and I used it in this dark space to run it up this red pole and watch the light just start to open up as I talked about that trophy and that shrine and that prize. And it was enough, it was perfectly enough to represent exactly what I think of it. And it also has this beautiful symbolic feel to me of not being there anymore, but there's still being a light present, um, which is what I think about him now. Not here anymore, but there's still a light present. What I learned moving through that piece is it was so hard for me and so raw to be working with that material that I needed a moment and a breath from it. And it's about to come back off the shelf and become a piece that's more, uh, more in depth about the relationship with uh, Pop and I.
1: And this piece has a simple one-word title, Home. Home. Can you describe a little more, uh, perhaps give us uh, some of the dialogue, sort of set the scene of the play? The piece that
2: I'll be coming back to is just about the patio because that's where so much of our life got told. We had like this beautiful backyard with a patio and we spent those sweltering summer nights like like tonight is going to be with sitting out there enjoying the sounds of nature and playing chess. My dad taught me to play chess and I would get so mad because I couldn't win. and and drinking sodas because there was no liquor in our house. So they didn't there that just didn't happen. And talking and talking about the life and coming outside on that patio in the midst of storms and our dad teaching us about tornadoes and what the color of the sky looked like and how the weather fell. You know, I mean it's all these like wives tales that he was like, This is this is fact. <laughs> uh, but that patio was the hub of of so much of our life with him. And and so that's, that's where the scene starts. One of the things that was interesting to me is when my dad died, I had a couple of friends, and one of my really close friends call me from around the country, and my one friend Michael said to me, I've always been jealous of you and your dad's relationship. And I said, oh, okay, well, I don't understand that. And he said, well, I've never seen a father and son act this way. And just be so in love with each other. And in the moment, you don't think about it you know it just is what it's just there it just is part of this and when it's gone now it's something
0: that i treasure more than probably anything else so given that there is this like real weight to working on a piece about something like this how do you start to step back in and work with that material again i start with things that are manageable so
2: there there're things that there're objects and there are stories that are less powerful and heartbreaking than the story of his death. When I was 10 years old, my mother broke her foot. And it was in December. And she couldn't Christmas shop. They, they wouldn't let her. And my dad was like, I got this. And he, I, it was literally like the the christmas story movie windows that year he took my sister shopping and they bought all the stuff for me and he took me shopping and he bought all we bought all the stuff for my sister and then he went shopping by himself and bought everything that my mother had ever asked for and christmas morning was just like chaos and it was the most beautiful moment, and in a rare moment, I saw a, just, I saw a beautiful smile of my father's and a tear come out of his eye because he was so happy. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at.
0: That was Matthew Kearns, director of St. Louis Fringe, talking about a theater project involving his dad.
1: And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Produced by Willis Ryder Arnold.
0: And Nancy Fowler, with help from our editor, David Cosserais.
1: The music you heard was by music producer, Trifecta.
0: You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: St. Louis Public Radio's podcast series, Cut and Paste, is made possible by space architects, designers, and builders, creating St. Louis's favorite spaces. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.